Please join me in welcoming the keynote closer for this year's festival, the Honorable Julian Castro. All right, hey y'all. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to Thanks see you. Put you out there, sure. Hey y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Are you going to explain to him that I'm the accidental closer today? No, you're the deliberate closer. <laughs> So You're I was supposed to be here yesterday, and then Evan says, hey, Kasich is, you can only do it on Saturday afternoon. Right, we so thought. are you willing to do it on Would Sunday? Would you come on and Sunday? Said, and then sure, we didn't end sure. up getting Kasich. And then Kasich didn't come. Right, that's so, right. You know what? I You're, wish I could take credit for being so important. You are cannot. that important. I you know, cannot. All that matters is what we say at the end, right? Not what we said along the way. I thought personal capacity meant you'd be here in board shorts and flip-flops. That that's not what happened. <laughs> I should have brought my jeans and boots or something. We don't really do board shorts and flip-flops, right. do we? That's how this goes. So was that an, uh, an endorsement or an audition last Thursday? <laughs> it, it was uh, very much my endorsement of Secretary Clinton to be president. Right. Yeah, but and, and whatever happens after that, we'll get there. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know she said that day that she's focused on her primary campaign and should be. She's not taking anything for granted, of course, of based course. on the way the primary is going. It's a very serious race, uh, right? So very definitely, that was my endorsement. As you know, Joaquin had uh, endorsed nine or ten months ago. Some law. He was one of the earliest people to endorse. Right. The idea, though, that a sitting cabinet secretary would endorse is not out of bounds, and it's certainly not like it's never happened. I believe Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, endorsed some time ago. But Tom Vilsack has a long relationship with the Clintons. Your relationship with Mrs. Clinton and with the former president is, is there, but it's less, less of a long-term relationship. Why, why did you decide? You understand that we all are curious about your motivation in stepping out now. Why did you step out now? Well, because the campaign is getting into gear. Right. I guess it's fair to say, compared to Tom Vilsack, you know, that, uh, that Joaquin and I have not had as long a relationship with, with Bill or Hil Hillary Clinton. Um, but we have been supportive and, uh, you know, I've had over the years a chance on a few occasions uh, to, to speak to Bill Clinton, Clinton and he was kind enough after I got nominated to uh, be HUD secretary to offer his advice. And, yeah. Um, so, you know, I just felt like it was time. We had the first Democratic debate uh, the voting is going to start in February, right? So it's not like we're a year away from that, right? Uh, if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? Like on December fifteenth? Like are you going to wait Christmas until it's shopping? In... Yeah. Wait, exactly. <laughs> really, if you think about it, these folks have um, about five weeks until Thanksgiving, and then until the first week of January, that's pretty much it. Nobody's right. going to be paying attention between that week of Thanksgiving until that first week of January. And then I believe the voting in Iowa is either February 1st. February 1st. So you have the month of January and these next five weeks. Right. Basically, the race yeah. is over at this point. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. But, but I would say that yeah. for those folks who are going to come out and endorse, right. the window is closing. Right. And so I wanted to make sure to get my voice out there. Do you agree with her on everything? I'm sure I don't. I'm sure I don't. Um, You're comfortable you know, with her, obviously, as the nominee. You're comfortable with enough of her positions on the big issues, you're in sync enough that you're well, good absolutely. with Absolutely. Right. Like she said at the debate, I mean, she is a progressive, um, but a progressive who also is concerned about actually getting things done. Right. And I think that actually works well for, for folks uh, like me who have had the experience of being a mayor in a city. Right. I mean, being a mayor 
or working in local government is all about fundamentally getting things done. And so when I was mayor of San Antonio, of course, uh, I brought a progressive perspective to it. Uh, at the same time, we had to actually produce. You have, to be, a you have to be a pragmatist as well a, as a progressive. You know, Washington, D.C., too often is like a debating society. Yeah. When you start wondering, well, what are the qualifications of some of these folks uh, who have been in, co in Congress? Well, you've been pushing a button a few times and then debating in your committee or subcommittee. Yeah. Uh, but, but what are you actually accomplishing? Uh, some of them have accomplishments. I'm not saying that people right. don't. But more and more, because these have been fairly unproductive, in fact, some of the least productive terms of Congress, you have to wonder yeah. about Washington, D.C. In fact, your brother makes a point of saying out on the you know, campaign trail and in conversation in front of an audience, you know, this may be the least productive Congress ever. It's certainly the least productive Congress in a long time. He, I have heard him say that. I've yeah. also heard him say that in 2014, for instance, uh, they were in session about 100 days out of the year. Right. You know, we knock. Sometimes. That's almost as bad as the Texas legislature, isn't it? <laughs> what do they have? 140, 140 days, days every, 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 year, every two though. years, right? Yeah. Uh, and that yeah. that should change, um, but you're only there 100 days. Do you think the Texas legislature should meet more often? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. do? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, because, as, uh, as as a mayor, I wonder if you had that perspective informed by your time as mayor that maybe not enough in Austin was getting done. Some people would like them to meet two days every 140 years. <laughs> Um, because stuff comes up in terms of legislation that ought to be addressed uh, within that time frame. Yeah. And uh, we've already seen, or we've seen in the last couple of cycles under Governor Perry, um, that essentially it's kind of bleeding into, into a longer term because he would just call special session after special session. How right. many special sessions do they have? a couple of terms ago, like two or three. I think two and a half. Yeah. Well, and the reason is you couldn't get the business of the state done. The, yeah. What would be the 11th largest economy in the world, you yeah. can't get that business done in 100. I mean, I also know, right. coming from a system in San Antonio, we had a charter that was, that was passed in 1951 and paid uh, council members $20 per meeting and the mayor $50 per meeting. Uh, you know, it was basically designed for a city that was a lot smaller. Right. where the business of the city could be conducted much more swiftly uh, without a lot of diversity, diversity of perspective right. or actual diversity, um, that Texas has grown out of this idea that you can just handle all your business in 140 days, and that's that. I mean, Texas is an economic juggernaut. It's one of the most important states in the United well, it States. Well, drives a lot of big public policy conversations, uh, right? It, yeah. it, it needs to... Right. You know, in terms of governance, it needs to right. act like that. To come back to this do-nothing Congress idea, there are a number of people, it occurs to me, running for president on the Republican side who come from Congress who are saying we're qualified to be president. Does the fact that they have been part of a Congress that hasn't done very much in your mind disqualify them because they really don't have the experience at getting things done? Is that what you're implying? What I would say is that, that the voters are going to have to take a look when they evaluate uh, each person's qualifications how long they've been there, what they've actually been able to accomplish in terms of legislation that they've gotten passed, right. who they've been able to work with. Uh, as I said before, I mean, some folks do have significant accomplishments. Somebody, so, some people have yeah, records to run on. I, I am right. not saying that because you are in Congress, you're, you don't have the qualifications. Right. What I'm saying is that because the Congress has become less and less productive, that automatic assumption that somebody is so well qualified right. because the they've been in Washington, D.C., yeah. 
that becomes less true, right. the less productive they right. are. Whatever else people say, and they say a lot about Secretary Clinton, it doesn't seem like her fitness to be president, qualifications, competency, experience, that that doesn't seem to be the issue. You, have, you have no doubt about that. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, somebody that's worked as a, as a United States Senator, right. even before that, when she was first lady uh, in Arkansas and leading an education reform effort, yeah. uh, when she was a Senator uh, leading uh, on so many efforts for New York and then as Secretary of State, it's fair to say that she has more foreign policy experience easily than anybody else on that stage. And then a lot of other people, probably in some cases, people running in the Republican Party too, right? Well, I would say, and I'm, I'm making sure that I'm thinking through all 16 candidates on the Republican side. Right. <laughs> take, then, take a few minutes. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Then any. Very, very any, possibly. Uh, any, yeah. any other candidate yeah. in either party, right. sure. You know the positive case for her. I want to ask you about a couple of things. You're, you endorsed her. You are opening the door. I'm going to walk through it. I want to ask you about some of the negative things that are said about her. I ask you to talk about that. Um, Anderson Cooper's first question to her at that debate was, basically, you say one thing one day, and you say another thing another day. You know, you said you were, you thought that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the great trade agreement that your friend Ron Kirk helped negotiate as U.S. trade representative, that the president is quite for and believes will be one of his big uh, legacy bits. Uh, she said it was the gold standard of trade agreements. She wrote about it in her book. She praised it. Well, then she came out against it because from the progressive end of her party, she was getting a lot of pressure to oppose the, the, the trade deal. That was perceived to be a flip-flop. She didn't give an answer on Keystone over many, many months and then finally came out against it, but that was perceived to be somehow her wanting to not give an answer that she could kind of have it both ways. You know this is a big a charge against her. Do you worry about her inability to stick with a position on key issues? No. Uh, she explained it well the other day at the debate. Uh, she has guiding values and principles that uh, she has stuck true to throughout yeah. her life in public service. And um, let's take one example, which is uh, TPP. Uh, you know, on TPP, that was a comment that she made, what, two and a half or three years ago, before the deal was actually negotiated. Before there was an actual yeah, thing I mean, to be for or against. There are, no, there are no parameters for that deal. The, none of the details are actually on paper. And so um, you know, there may have been a phrase that was used, but was anybody at that time actually able to address the deal as it was? Yeah. No, because there was no deal. Now, I will say, uh, you know, in full disclosure, that, that uh, I support the president. So you're, you're, you're for it and I, she's not. I support the president. Yeah. And this is something that Ron addressed the other day as well, very forthrightly. And, and I agree with Ron uh, that I believe that, that it can be a strong deal. It will be a strong deal for the United States. And in this 21st century global economy will enhance America's ability to boost uh, our economic standing and, and sell more of our exports. Right. At the same time, as we started out with, people are not going to agree on every single issue. Right. So the fact that she's opposed to it and you're for it, obviously you've decided well, and, you're and okay with it. More than that, I believe that yeah. it demonstrates right. that people of uh, that, that believe different things on different issues are supportive of Secretary Clinton. Uh, right. Folks who are very progressive on a lot of issues, some folks who are moderate or conservative Democrats, she has a broad base of support in right. the Democratic Party. Uh, speaking of Keystone, so she came out against the Keystone Pipeline. Are you for the Keystone Pipeline? You know, I, I honestly, on that issue, I have not looked at all the details of the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, what I saw in Texas uh, when I was mayor was that, um, you know, I believe that, that we have uh, 
some great opportunities uh, in terms of natural gas uh, and also in terms of renewables. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm not somebody that, that uh, even though when I was chair of, of, I mean, mayor and on the CPS Energy Board, uh, I very much moved CPS Energy in the direction of embracing renewables, and we became a leader in that. Uh, I'm also not somebody that, that just says we're not going to do fracking, you know, we're, right. that, that throws it to the side automatically. I believe that we need to, to strike a reasonable balance there. On fracking, for instance, um, I was in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club a few months ago, and somebody asked me, oh, you know, uh, do you agree with fracking? And I said, well, you know, so far from what I've seen, um, I have not supported a prohibition on that. However, I have become very concerned with what I've seen in terms of seismic activity in North Texas and other places. And I believe that we need research that legitimately, neutrally, yeah. not, that is not funded by the oil and gas companies, but neutrally demonstrates whether there is a link between this seismic activity and the fracking. So, you know, I'm going to be somebody that goes by the evidence out there um, with a perspective, but not automatically going in one direction. Keeps, keep, keeps an open mind, at least, sure. on some of this sure. stuff. Um, let me ask you about income inequality and the, this question of the haves and the have-nots, which has been a, a theme of this race, of course, particularly through the Democratic primary, Democratic debate. Uh, Secretary Clinton is talking about this. Some believe that she may be talking about it in part because Senator Sanders was talking about it and he helped her get to that uh, as an issue. Is she doing enough to talk about that? We've had this conversation before because of the high poverty rate in your hometown of San Antonio. This has been a concern of yours for some time. Are you satisfied that she is addressing that issue in this campaign sufficiently? Not only am I satisfied, she's actually speaking about this in, in more direct and more, uh, I think, descriptive terms in terms of policy than any of the other candidates. Uh, you know, she's talked about uh, raising the minimum wage. She's talked about finding ways in, to incentivize in the tax code companies that share profits with their employees. She's talked about closing the pay gap between men and women. So she has spoken in concrete policy terms about the kind of legislation that she would pursue. Right, not just in generalities. Yeah, I mean, you know, I. I consider myself a progressive Democrat, and uh, I get as enthusiastic as anybody else when folks go out there and, you know, they deliver the red meat of what we want to hear. But at the end of the day, you also have to understand the policy and you have to be able to get that accomplished. And uh, I believe that Secretary Clinton is the yeah. most likely to actually get those progressive ideas accomplished in Washington. So are those, those, you mentioned two things there. You mentioned closing the pay gap between men and women, so some kind of equal pay for equal work or or what have you, legislation. And then the second thing you mentioned was raising the minimum wage. Those are two things that you are for? Yes. Legislation that would address each of those issues or policies that would address each of those. That's right. I support yeah. both of those. Um, Secretary Clinton came out very strongly. Oddly, I was surprised. I don't know that I knew enough about Senator Sanders' position on this issue, but to my mind, oddly, to the left of him on guns. In the wake of all the gun violence we've seen, I, we talked about it a lot this weekend, the day of the uh, shooting in uh, Oregon was the 275th calendar day of the year. It was the 294th mass shooting of the year. We're up over 30,000 gun deaths a year. Some of this came up in the debate the other day. She actually was quite strong on the question of, of going after the NRA. She seems unabashed about that this time. You, you think she's doing enough on that? I do. Should uh, she be I, doing more? 
Uh, I, well, I don't know what more she could do other than directly take on the NRA. Maybe maybe cases. punch Wayne LaPierre right in the face, possibly <laughs> yeah. she could do, I guess. But, but I mean, let me, yeah. let me address that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, she, she has a track record uh, of supporting the Brady Bill, of supporting uh, expanded background checks, yep. uh, of, of understanding what we need to do to make our community safer. And um, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. After and you and you share those policy positions again with her. Oh, absolutely. And so a so couple of years ago, ban on ban on semi-automatic weapons. That's right. Uh, ban on high-capacity mag magazines. Yes. And stepped-up background checks for gun purchasers. And you want to see all those things done? Yeah, yeah. And let me tell you why. Yeah. Um, in a way that I don't think is talked about enough. You know, this false narrative has been set up by the NRA about you know good guys with guns and bad guys with guns. And they say, well, the only way to keep, some, uh, to keep yourself safe in a situation is for you to have a gun. We see this with campus carry, open carry, and so forth. What people don't talk about, and I think is really at the heart of this, is the element of surprise. I can have four security guards around me and a gun myself, but if somebody has a gun that just walks up here on University Avenue, what happened to Chris Kyle, for instance, at a gun range, is that somebody is gonna have at least one shot of surprise in any context, what happened to Gabby Giffords? So I start from there and then I start thinking in that situation, okay, well then what is it that you can do, A, to limit the possibility that you're ever gonna get into that situation? And secondly, if you are in that situation, to start limiting the possibility of how many people are actually gonna be injured after that person gets off their first shot. So, you talk about the policies that will limit ever getting to that situation. This is where the legitimate focus, I think, on uh, treating mental illness and right. screening out folks in terms of background checks who have been um, abusers and had a history of domestic violence, because a lot of gun violence is actually related to that, and we right. need to do a better job at a, the city and state level with that. Um, you know, background checks at gun shows that uh, we need to put into place. Then you get into uh, things like high-capacity magazines. So when you're in that situation, do you want somebody to be able to get off 30 or 10, or does it make a difference? I think that, that you can preserve somebody's Second Amendment rights, right. but also ensure that, that, that you know, somebody can't get right. off 30 rounds before folks can get out of the way. Right. Um, it also means that is it reasonable to consider in some situations that you would have uh, an armed security guard that would be at a building? Yeah, and a lot of places do that. I don't think that every kindergarten classroom or, or school necessarily has to do that, but in some situations, does that make sense? And would that help to have somebody who is actually trained, who can respond during a chaotic situation? Right. I do. I do think that sometimes that makes sense. Right. But it has to be thought in terms of the actual element of surprise and how to deal with that right. uh, in the context of gun Now, violence. of course, Dan Patrick and I had the, uh, the opening conversation to this festival a couple days ago, and if he were sitting here, he would say, Mr. Secretary, uh, what part of the Constitution don't you understand? You know, why do you hate the Second Amendment so much? Why do you hate our freedom? That, that is distilled, the argument that is made by the other side to stuff of the sort that you've just said. Your response to that is what? Is Dan Patrick still talking? <laughs> now?
Ever? I, I mean, I'm asking. I thought he went quiet after I put him down in that debate. In San Antonio? Wow. So let me, so, so, so personal capacity Julian is also smack talk Julian. Is that what I'm to understand? Okay. I would just say that, yeah, uh, yeah obviously, <laughs> we see it differently. And um, I think what you see in the business community these days, for instance, um, with regard to uh, open carry and campus carry it, are deep concerns uh, about how this is going to be implemented in Texas. And there's a strong and gathering feeling that perhaps the legislation went too far. Uh, now, I didn't agree with it in the first place, but uh, probably what you're going to see when they come back are at least the, the introduction of certain amendments to that. Well, or at least an attempt to get the policies changed. Yeah, I mean, some and, will push back should. against I that, mean, of course. I'll tell you, when I was mayor, right. um, we had an incident <clears throat> where open carry activists went uh, and they paraded outside of the Alamo. Um, now, first of all, I don't think that that's necessary to demonstrate that you can carry your guns. That, that's, you know, you can, you can lobby in the legislature to get that uh, passed, and obviously it was going to be passed. Right. But secondly, what does that do to our tourism industry? I, I've wondered, I told my brother this back then when it was happening, I wonder, what in the world does the hospitality industry think uh, about their prospects in this state, whether it's at the Alamo, the Riverwalk, you know, any of our beautiful places in Austin, you know, 6th Street, Houston and Dallas, the more that those folks choose to, to uh, exhibit themselves in that way, the more damage that they're going to do to the hospitality industry. Now, that's not the end-all and be-all of whether how we should make our decisions. But, but you think there's going to be an impact on economic development? Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, well, if, if that is abused in that way, right. uh, then I, I believe that the business community, at least certain elements of the business community, right. ought to be extremely concerned right. about the byproduct of that. Let me, let me ask this from another angle, and then I want to detour back to Secretary Clinton and some of the stuff in this race. Uh, you know, most states that have open carry passed opt-outs for the big cities. This legislature did not. So the big cities of this state will be the biggest cities in the country with open carry when open carry goes to effect on January 1st. Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, Austin. You were the mayor of one of those cities. If you were the mayor of San Antonio and open carry were coming on January 1st of next year, that would be a concern of yours? Would you be, how would you be thinking about open carry becoming the law in San Antonio? Well, if it were, if, if we're faced with, and we are faced with having to deal with it, the way that I would think about it is this. A whole bunch of states already have open carry. Um, and at least from what I've read with open carry, most people don't actually open carry their weapons. And Rick Casey, you know, I know you do the Texas Week kind on of uh, satellite on right. KLRN yeah. uh, check-in with him, made a very good point that, and others have, that one of the reasons is that it's essentially not polite to walk into a restaurant right very aggressively with your weapon. Well, in fact, the other side, I should say, the side supportive of open carry makes the same point. Look, no, it's yeah, not so like a lot of people are going to do it. Yeah, okay. So, right, yeah. so let's agree for a second on right, that. Yeah. So your question was, well, how would I start thinking about that yeah. if we had to deal with it? Yeah. If we had to deal with it, I would start thinking about how do you get as soon as possible to that point where you don't have people feeling like they have to beat their chest, in other words, go and carry their, their uh, weapons on them, right. But you get to this point where it's just integrated quietly into the fabric of, of you know, the, the, the city life. Right. That's how I would think about how do we deal with this 
basically appealing to folks to do this in a, in a mature and thoughtful way. How do appeals to maturity go these days? <laughs> when, you, when you look out in the world, do appeals well, to mean, maturity do very well? Uh, outside of D.C., they do better than in D.C. Okay, well, sure. that's all right, very fair, um, fair, fair point. I still think that, uh, that one of the great things about local communities is that people are able to work together because there's a, there's a spirit of community Right. And wanting the community to get ahead and to advance in a community identity, especially in places like San Antonio, um, that helps you, whether it's on that issue or economic development or something else. Yeah. Um, so back to the question of Secretary Clinton and the endorsement in San Antonio, that was part of a Latino outreach effort. One of the conversations that we had in the panel that preceded this is whether Secretary Clinton was in a position to keep the Obama coalition together. A big part of that coalition was the Latino vote. Why is she the right candidate for the Latino community? You understand the Latino community very well. You were mayor of a, a majority Latino city for, for two and a half terms. Uh, help us understand uh, how she or how any Democrat holds what was really an extraordinary coalition together that the president put in, uh, in place in 2012. Well, the good news is that Secretary Clinton has a very strong track record. Long history. On the issues. Yeah, yeah. long history. I mean, you know, I, she was very relaxed that day, and there was a great, enthusiastic crowd, and that was written about yeah. accurately by a lot of the journalists who were there. And the reason for that is that, that she started in San Antonio and in Austin back in 72 in the McGovern campaign, and part of what she was doing was registering voters, including yeah. Spanish-speaking voters, a lot of the Hispanic community back then. And I think that that, at a young age, a young age formed sort of her outlook uh, on the community um, as an aspiring community, as one that she could work with. And most importantly, throughout her time in public service, she has a track record of, of being supportive on issues that all Americans, but, but particularly Latinos, care about as an aspiring yeah. community. Um, improving education, investing in public schools, um, investing in health care. Latinos have been the biggest beneficiaries of the Affordable Care Act. Millions more Latinos have health insurance because of that Affordable Care Act that, that if a Republican were elected and uh, he or she says what, does what they say they're gonna do and, and repeals it, they would lose that health care coverage. Right. Um, and of course, on immigration reform and what she has said about preserving the administrative action that the president has, has put into place on yep. DACA and DAPA. So you think that she should embrace the last eight years? There was some question as to, you know, the idea that George H.W. Bush is the exception. Parties that have been in the White House for eight years typically don't win another term, and there's some question about whether she wants to be perceived as Obama's third term. Now, obviously, it wouldn't be the same, but there is a question for her as to how enthusiastically to embrace the last eight years. And you know, Mr. Yeah. Secretary, you know that every presidential election is ostensibly about the next eight years, but really it's about the last eight years. And so the Obama record is going to be a sh cast a shadow on this race no matter what. How should she regard that record? Well, Sounds number, like you think she should embrace number it. Number one, I yeah. believe it's going to be a positive you do. influence. Yeah. Oh, no question. When you think about where we were on January 20th, 2009, right. losing several hundred thousand jobs a month uh, on the brink of a depression, and compare that to where we are now, despite the headwinds that the president has faced in Congress, uh, on, on so many measures, we are a stronger nation than we were uh, when the president became president in January of 2009. Does the, con does the country get that? The polls, don't so. the polls don't suggest that the country, better than about half and half, thinks that. I believe that they do and that they will in the election. And so, you know, I, I'm 
reluctant to give uh, any candidate advice because that's a, a decision that she and the campaign have to make. But I believe that there's a tremendous amount to be proud of and that it's going to be that the president's legacy is going to be very positive in the election. Uh, to speak specifically to the Obama coalition, because you mentioned it, yeah. you know, I mean, what do we think that they want to, what, that they're looking for? Uh, that Obama coalition was an Obama coalition. Right. Uh, but at the same time, if you disaggregate the parts of the coalition, this is the, again, I referred to this in the previous panel, the coalition of the ascendant, right? African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latinos, young people, gays and lesbians, and women. It, it, to hold that coalition together, one might think you have policies that appeal across those ver verticals. My question is, is she in a position to appeal kind of tick, 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 tick across the board and try to hold that coalition together? I believe she is. Yeah. I believe she's the strongest one on the Democratic side to do that. Uh, and remember, that was a very close race in 2008. Uh, and I'm confident that she can get that coalition in 2016. And you and your brother in 08, remind me, were for her? We were with her originally. Right, right. So the people who were with President Obama, we, 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 and we're not necessarily with Secretary there seems to be some kind of a coming together of those two halves in this election. Oh, absolutely. The Obama people from 08 have, have made peace yeah, with I mean, the idea. She, there, there are a whole bunch of folks who right. worked on the president's 2008 yeah. campaign that are now... Would you be comfortable with Bernie Sanders if Bernie Sanders were the nominee? Would I be comfortable with Bernie yeah. Sanders? Yeah. Sure. You could support him, no problem? Yeah. You think he could get elected? I believe that he could get elected. Um, this country would elect somebody who embraces the label Democratic Socialist? Well, I believe that it would be more difficult for Bernie Sanders to get elected, but yeah. remember that, that elections are always a comparison between two people. So you're going right. to have somebody like Donald Trump on the other side. Uh, you're, you're telling us about your prayers every night, aren't you? <laughs> that you're, you're, you're revealing your innermost yeah, wishes. I, I get that, yeah. Yeah, so, it, it'd be a, diff it'd be a different I mean, deal. Like, right. you know, which one of those Republican candidates is lighting the world on fire with, right. with moderate voters? Right. So you guys, so let's, let's, let's uh, imagine a scene where you're in the White House commissary and you're getting a, a like nice... Serving the food you're getting, No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. Nice image. You didn't let me finish. You're getting yourself an iced tea. <laughs> and the vice... That's a good recovery, Evan. Thank That's you very recovery. much. Thank you. <laughs> it's the end of a long weekend. And the vice, and the vice president walks up to get an iced tea yeah. himself. And he says to you, hey, I'm thinking about running for president. What do you think about that? What do you say to him there at the iced tea dispenser? Yeah, this, this question was asked of me the other day. That way exactly? No, no. No, no I didn't no. think so. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. They had me mowing the lawn and that Did way. they actually? Okay, good. Well, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, let, me, let me just say, I'm going to be sleeping in the doghouse tonight. <laughs> I'm completely kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, this question was asked the yeah, other day. Right. And um, uh, I said that uh, as somebody who has run for office, I know, and at a smaller level as mayor of San Antonio, I know that that is a very personal decision. It's clear that the vice president is going through that decision right now. Uh, and I'm sure has spoken with his family many times about it. Right. And as a colleague in the administration, you know, I just don't think that it's my place to, to speculate about whether he's going to get in or not get in. Well, if you were that worried, Mr. That. Secretary, you wouldn't have endorsed before he made his decision. 
No, that's not true. You know, a couple of months ago in July, when I saw Secretary Clinton, I told her uh, you at intended the NCLR to event yeah. in Kansas City, hey, you know, I think I'm I'm ready to be supportive. Let's talk. Let right. me know. So it's been in the works for months. So even if he gets in, you're not going to think, eh, maybe I jumped the gun too quick. I mean, you know, there's some concern with, I mean, if you believe the press on this, that there's some concern within people in the administration. Well, God, if he gets in, it's going to be kind of weird for us. And what do we do? And maybe we want to jump in and yeah. support Secretary Clinton, but we don't want to offend the vice president. Yeah. You're not concerned no, about... Um, yeah, I spoke with him very briefly. Uh, you let him know before you well, endorsed? After it came out, I, yeah. I let him know that, first of all, I was sorry that it had leaked out before uh, I was able to, to connect. With I think him. that was, those he, were the, the, the people at BuzzFeed. I'll wag my finger at them for <laughs> leaking the news before you could tell but, the vice president. Uh, he was yeah. very, very gracious uh, and thanked me for the call. It was a very brief call. Right. Um, and so you know, we did touch base briefly after that. But uh, if, you, you guys if, are good. One of the, yes, yeah. absolutely. And one of the things I told him was uh, that if, if he did get in the race and he became the nominee, that I look forward to wholeheartedly supporting him. Uh, I believe that if he did become president, that he would do a phenomenal job as president. Yeah. Uh, and so... Do you walk I, away I, with any sense of whether he's looking at this? I mean, is, I are the reports that he's looking at it seriously are true? I, I didn't walk away with any sense of it was the a, way a, he's going to go. It was a flat conversation as far as that, it was. As, as far as that went. Um, can I ask you to give me your theory of the Republican race? You are an astute political observer, having been in uh, several offices previously. You know Democratic politics. You know the country's politics. What is your theory of the race on the Republican side? What's going on here? And if you care to, tell us how it's likely to turn out. Yeah, I, you know, I wish I could say that I understood that side as well as I understand the Democratic side. But of you probably have a sense of what's going on. You had a panel a little while ago. We did. Uh, of these DC um, reporters that, that follow it all the time. I don't know that I can add much to that except to say that uh, at some point it's going to come down to probably somebody who is a classic outsider and somebody who is in the establishment, so to speak. It whittles down to two. Yeah. And, right. um, and is that going to be Cruz and Rubio, or is that going to be Trump and somebody else, Rubio or Bush, or I don't know. I yeah. don't know. Like, you know, even Fiorina was climbing, and then all of a sudden that fizzled out. Right. Rubio was climbing, and, and you measure these things now in weeks almost. Who would you like, your, who would you like your side to run against? We have time, so if you have a I, long I, list, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, I believe that Secretary Clinton will beat any of, of uh, those Republican nominees. You do? Yeah. Why? She has a stronger track record right. uh, in terms of actually getting things done. Uh, most importantly, she has a blueprint to create greater opportunity in America in the 21st century. They'll say that they do also. Well, but I think she can demonstrate uh, how she's done that and she understands the issues much better. I think she's running a good campaign. Yeah. Um, she's going to have stronger support. That's on the candidate end and then you look on the electorate end. Uh, I, I'm confident that the electorate is a receptive one. Right. Uh, that demographic changes are making it so in certain key states. Yeah. So I think she's going to, she's, it's going to be a close election like all of these have right. recently. But at the end of the day, 
and I'm confident that she's going to prevail. It's interesting to think about what's happened in the last eight years. Yes, the country does seem to be, and all evidence seems to be, that the country is more democratic or more progressive or at least more open to the idea of democratic leadership at the national level. Sure. But around the country, Republicans have won a ton of governorships and have taken a ton of state legislatures with the result that they now have the power of redistricting in a lot of states. And so it's becoming ever more the case that you know, you have bluer blues and redder reds in the states, and the the states all seem more Republican, or many of them of them do. Even though, like, what's going on there? That's interesting. I mean, I don't know that that's a a, a recipe for more things getting done. It feels like maybe it's a recipe for fewer things getting done. Well, at the congressional level, um, that pulling a part of the sides is right. is the uh, consequence of the kind of heavily partisan redistricting efforts that we've had. Yep. That's why it'll be fascinating to watch as places like California have more experience with their commission model of redistricting. Right, trying to depoliticize. Yeah, this, their system essentially rewards folks who are a little bit more moderate in their party. Um, I, I don't believe California's the only one that's doing that. I think maybe there are one or two others that right. are doing that. Um, but at the state legislature level, yeah, I mean, there's no question that that over these last eight year, six and a half years that many of these states have become more Republican. Yep. I believe these things go in cycles. Some of that happened uh, when George W. Bush was, was um, president. You remember here in Texas, for instance, that in 2003, I believe it was um, 88 to 62 after that election, Republicans to, yep. to Democrats. In the, it, in, in the Texas in the House. House, yes. And then it went all the way at one point to 76, 74, right before the 2010 right. sweep. Um, so and then at one it, point, it the Repu then, then the number of Republican seats then climbed all the way back up above 100. Yeah, and then it was, there, they had, a, I think, 101. It was a right. supermajority. Yeah. And now it's, where is it now? 98-52. Yeah. So th there is some fluidity. Redistricting is going to be very important. The, the good news for Democrats is that uh, I believe that because of what happened last time, that Democrats have gotten their act together more and are a lot right. more focused on, on preparing for that cycle to empower folks, get folks elected and empower them to do redistricting. Yeah. And also on the legal end, as you've seen here in Texas, they're not shy about, uh, I think, prudently filing lawsuits where they deserve to be filed against redistricting that is done um, in an unfair way, in a biased way, and that'll continue. That's going to that's play out. So let me, let me go there on the running mate stuff. I know what you're going to do. You're going to be gracious. You're going to say, I'm flattered to be considered. We don't know what's going to happen. Do you even want this job? You know, <laughs> the, you know, I mean, I don't have to go all warm bucket of spit on you, you know, the sort of long ago, who would want this job? Erica Greeter in Texas Monthly wrote something this week saying basically, I know he's going to be considered, but it's an awful, why would he want, it's not a powerful job. You, dis, you go to funerals, you disappear, <laughs> you disappear from the scene. I know that both Dick Cheney and Joe Biden have been, and frankly, Al Gore have been powerful vice, pres uh, vice presidents. They've asserted the power and been brought in on that. But her argument is it's a, it's a terrible job. Do you have any perspective on that, leaving aside whether you're the one? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, first, I, st I don't fundamentally believe that I am going to be selected. Why? Um, I don't know. I just, a feeling. Um. <laughs> like a magic eight ball thing? I mean, what's like, what's the, what, what, just, what? You know, I, because, in your life, sometimes, you know, when you kind of think about your future, or there are some things that 
grab, you know, grab you right away that, yeah, no, I think that's going to happen. And, you know, that hasn't throughout my life, that hasn't, or in the last couple of years, that hasn't necessarily been one of them. So You're not opposed I'm to not, it necessarily. I, I guess the best way to say it is that uh, if I had that opportunity presented, that, of course, like anybody else, that my family and I would have to give that very, very serious thought. There are wonderful reasons to do that because I don't think that the role is as inconsequential, obviously, as it's been painted, not just by Erica, but throughout history, um, that, that you, in fact, over the last several vice presidents, they have been strong partners, yeah. sometimes in ways that you know, I liked and other times in ways not, that I Not didn't. so much, right. Um, yeah. But certainly, Vice President Biden has done a phenomenal job. At the same time, especially for somebody who is, who is um, in their 40s, you're talking about changing your life. You just had a new baby, forever. right? You had a new baby. You have another, you know, still relatively, how old is your daughter now? Six. Six. Your, your son is? Is going to be 10 months old. Going to be 10 months old. The change, I mean, look at what Paul Ryan is agonizing over. I mean, leave aside the question of who would want to be Speaker of the House. One of the concerns he has is, I've got kids back home in Janesville. I'm not sure I want to disrupt this time in my life. I'll never get it back. That might be a consideration yeah, for you. I, mean, I think that anybody who is level-headed and cares about their family and, you know, the, that you have to think about that. You have to make that decision if the opportunity is presented, not just because, oh, I want, to, I want this title or I want this. Yeah. You have to take a sober look at it. And so if, if I were presented with that position like anybody else, um, Erica and I would have to really think about it. Er, not Erica Greeter. Erica, your wife. My wife's name is Erica. Okay, yes, good. Yes, yes. Just clarifying. Because <laughs> I, I already know where Erica Greeter stands. So yes, I won't exactly. Have to call her. No, no, no. Yeah, she, she, she's perfectly happy to tell us. No, I understand that. Um, uh, uh, you might actually, if offered the opportunity to do it, you might say no. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, because most people think, well, I couldn't possibly say no if I'm asked. It's hard to, to be able. In the same way that when the president called you to be Secretary of HUD, when the president calls, you take the call, and when he asks, it's really, really hard not to say yes. Might be easier to say no in this case. You might say no. Well, first of all, I don't believe that's going to happen. Um, right. But yeah, I would have to seriously consider. You'd have to seriously it's, consider. It's not it, right. a given that I would say sure. Yeah. Right now, um, you've said to me previously we had an opportunity at the Austin Club earlier in the uh, earlier in the year to sit down and talk about the possibility of running for governor which at one point was thought, you know, well, maybe what'll happen is, and this was when you were still mayor, maybe Julian runs for governor, Joaquin runs for the Senate against Ted Cruz. It's a Patty Duke moment at the top of the <laughs> Democratic ticket in 2018. Now, that seems less likely, one or both potentially this time, but I thought once you went into the cabinet, well, he's probably not going to come back and run for governor. But you, uh, you allowed us how, when we sat down, that you're still considering the possibility of running for governor. Oh, I said you haven't ruled it out. Idea. I mean, Folks want people that are straightforward with them. I mean, I, right now, if you ask me, are you running for governor in 2018? No, I'm not. I mean, I have no intention of running for governor. Right. It's extremely unlikely likely right now in my thinking that I would do that. Would I say, is there zero chance that I right. didn't say that either? Right. But you're not very likely to see my name on that ballot. Let me, let me not, not very likely, but you're not 100% not sure, but most, certainly, most likely not, not going to do it. That's right. Yeah. The Democratic bench these days in Texas is pretty thin. 
So, so where, where, where do the Democrats go for candidates for governor who are plausible and competitive at the statewide level, or should they just decide, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're good, we're gonna hang until until a later election cycle? No, we have some folks in the state senate that I believe. Who um, specifically, please name names? Well, I mean, <laughs> sure. Uh, you have folks like uh, uh, Kirk Watson that have been there. Um, I think that get it, that understand the issues. Uh, even in the State House, you have folks like Trey Martinez Fisher. Uh, you have a, a whole bunch of um, up and coming folks in the State House. Uh, it's true because I mean, it's been what, since 1994? Ni 1994. Well, that anybody was serving. Serving in 1994 since any Democrat's been elected statewide, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. You have that long of a drought. You're not going to have as many options as you would if you had other statewide elected officials. But right. I do believe that you, you have effective, articulate right. folks in, in the legislature here that could run and could eventually win. Right. Um, it's going to take some time yep. for the state to turn over. Uh, but the Democratic Party has a long and proud history in Texas, and it's not like they're just going to give up. They're going to keep fighting until eventually we do right. turn the state blue again. Okay, we're gonna go to questions in a second. Again, please line up at the microphones, no speeches, be respectful, blah, 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 the whole thing. Before I ask that, let me ask you to make the case for why the state needs a change in leadership. Republicans have controlled the state now for all these years. The economic record of Rick Perry, whether you like Rick Perry personally or not, Texas created more jobs on a net jobs uh, growth basis than the other 49 states combined, whether the recession better than the other 49 states. There are a lot of ways in which leadership of Texas, Governor Perry, Governor Abbott, people across the board would say, look, the state's been run pretty well under Republicans. Why would you change horses at a time when things are going well? What's the case you would make in response to that? Well, that's their basic argument. Um, you know, we saw, we're seeing right now, uh, though, that Texas can do better. It's not nearly as prepared as it ought to be to compete in the 21st century global economy. A good example of that is what's happened just in 2015, in most of the months of 2015, California has beat up on Texas, uh, not just in football, but in terms of job creation. Um, I mean, California is creating significantly more jobs today than Texas is. Uh, and so there are kind of two answers to that. Either folks can say, well, of course, it's what's happened in oil and gas. Well, if it's what's happened in oil and gas, then it wasn't really your leadership, that it was our natural resources that gave us the advantage during that time. Yep. Uh, at the same time, we still have the highest percentage of uninsured folks in the in the nation. Right. Um, we still have, I think, too many of our jobs that are concentrated at minimum wage or lower end level that don't allow folks to provide for their families yep. and enter the middle class. Yep. Uh, instead of understanding that it's not between a lot of regulation and low regulation, it's about smart regulation. Too many times there's been an insiderism in this state that has allowed stuff like the West explosion to happen and what happened at Bluebell, yep. where you, you, you don't have smart a smart approach to regulation that keeps folks safe. So um, I don't know whether you're gonna have a Democrat that pops up in, in 2018 or later down the road, but as to the question of is there different leadership that could take Texas a lot higher than it is today, Oh, absolutely. And that's the case that such a person would make? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Sir. Uh, I'd like to just preface this today by saying that I do support Senator Sanders and Secretary Clinton far and away 
than any of the Republican candidates. Yep. But um, as Your it stands, question. in 2001, uh, Hillary was approving, or she approved the Patriots Act, in which case now she's against the obstruction of privacy. In 2002, she approved the Iraq War, now she's against it. She only recently came out in support of same-sex marriage and only recently disproved the TPP. Question, please. Is it disingenuous please. to support a candidate who's so fickle with their beliefs? Well, we actually addressed a version of this. Yeah, you, no, you, you, re you reject the theory that she is fickle on her face. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, in contrast, that Senator Sanders sustained with his All right, let him, well, let him answer. I mean, uh, first of all, um, it, it's a very good question. Um, I would be very hard-pressed to point out any person that has been uh, in public service for any number of years that has not come upon new facts or different facts or sometimes a, a different way of thinking about an issue so that sometimes it, it impacts how they look at it and what they do on it. That's true of Senator Sanders as well, particularly on guns. What he did versus what he's saying now are two very different things. So um, I'm confident that that Secretary Clinton has the right progressive values and principles guiding her, and that she has stronger experience actually getting things done, understanding how to forge constructive relationships, and at the end of the day, move our country in the right direction so that all Americans are able to benefit in this 21st century global economy. Thank you. Sir. Um, hello, I was going to ask about the foreign policy with Clinton. You said that she has a much more, more extensive uh, record than other candidates, which is true. However, she has a lot of criticism with it. Benghazi, the uh, Iraq vote, and recently she said that Iran was her one of her proudest enemies, which as Secretary of State, shouldn't she be working for cordial relations when it comes to foreign policy? So, so when is it quality over quantity? And like, well, I, I believe that she, that she has worked very productively as she did as Secretary of State. I mean, you all remember um, 10 years ago, let's say in 2005, uh, the kind of response that America was getting around the world to its foreign policy. Uh, and what the Obama administration has been able to do is re-strengthen our alliances and, and lift America's standing in the world. And a lot of that was driven by Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. So. Uh, I, I'm confident that, uh, that she can put her track record up against anybody. A few months ago, I said, I believe in late May, that, that this effort by Trey Gowdy, uh, who's leading this oversight committee. Benghazi committee, at which she's testifying yeah, on Thursday, right? Was a political yeah. witch hunt. And some folks said, oh, why are you saying that? You know, you start hearing it on Twitter. And now, uh, two or three Republicans have basically admitted that. And they're having an argument within their own caucus, basically, of what they need to do now, whether they need to just, uh, I think, change the subject or keep going. Uh, so you don't think the Benghazi uh, conversation, as long as it goes on, is harmful to her? Legitimate or not, if, it, if, I, I, if this I mean, obviously, they're, gonna, they're interested in continuing the conversation for as long as possible. At this point, it right. has been unmasked as a political witch hunt. In some ways, actually, it's kind of come back around. Yeah. She, she seems to be saying, I mean, the first ad, Peter Hamby pointed out previously, the first national ad buy they did was about Kevin McCarthy acknowledging that the committee investigation was about getting her poll numbers down. Yeah. She's now going, okay, you want to talk about Benghazi? We'll talk about Benghazi, right? The Republicans are digging a hole at this point. You think they are? Okay. Ma'am? I have two questions. One, uh, you can only ask one, I'm sorry. I've got a whole bunch of people here, I apologize. I understand. Yeah, ask one. In this 
San Antonio, probably more people turn out for the Spurs than they do to vote. Well, this last year, that's the case. Yeah. I don't think this many people voted in San Antonio. Houston last year. Chronicle analysis found that if Latinos voted at the same rate as whites, Texas would be blue. What could the Democrats be doing and should be doing and are not doing to turn out Latinos at the polls? And as to the second question, when Central American children turned up at the border, it became right. a ballywick of anti Latino sentiment deploying troopers right. to the uh, to border. And Clinton came out and said, just send them back. There was a question about constitutional protections. Was she wrong about that? Please answer the first question. <laughs> okay. yes, go ahead. Uh, well, let me just say on the, on the voter turnout that um, let me give you something that's practical that we ought to do, be doing a lot better in Texas. You're right about the registration and turnout in Texas. I think we're last in terms of turnout. And uh, the dead last, the last three cycles yeah, overall in terms of turnout. In terms of the Latinos, you know, very low. Um, we need to make use of um, local governments and especially school boards that are able under their authority, and I believe under the education code, to encourage young people to get registered to vote. Now, I'm assuming that we're not going to get legislation through like Governor Brown just signed in California. So that was Something the D like DMV where when you sign up for a driver's license, you yeah, automatically automatically register. you're right. registered. I mean, I'm assuming that you're going to get roadblocked on that by, by Republicans. However, those Republicans don't control the vast majority of school boards in these big urban counties. Um, and in you know, the HISD, AISD, SAISD, a whole bunch of other smaller districts in the valley. You know, if, if I were sitting on those school boards, what I would do is, is I would launch a very significant effort to make sure that every single person who's about to turn 18 as a high school senior is registered to vote. And that you, you improve high school civics and government and that you do very practical things. For instance, one of the things I heard was being done uh, in Washington, Oregon, taking the actual voting machines that people use to vote, the electronic voting machines, running those through classrooms regularly to teach people physically how to vote. Educate because people on how to people vote. Because once people get to be, it's almost like, I think it's almost in some ways like the person who was 22 and then they had to, like, would you want to go back to high school in 22? Some people, they don't do it for a long time. Right. And then they almost feel ashamed or they feel like, oh, well, I don't know about the system and I'm, I kind of... Well, you've hit on something interesting that. because uh, registration, that's one thing. But there are also a bunch of people who are registered and just don't vote. Yeah, no, right? I think that's, that's the, probably that's the bigger the problem. That's the second so, part. And I think one of the reasons is they feel like, they, okay, I'm not tapped into the system. And if you actually show people, physically show people and teach them about voting and how to do it, and the system, I think you're creating a pipeline of people that are going to be much more likely to actually vote in addition to making sure that they get registered. Good. Ma'am. Okay, I might get a lot of heat for this question. So, <laughs> um, so I, in 2010, Time Magazine released an article talking about how in urban communities, single childless women um, on average got paid 8% more than their male counterparts. And cities like New York City saw 17% um, more women were making more than their male counterparts. So is it fair to say that the left is kind of exacerbating the difference in the pay gap between men and women to incite more of their base to come out and vote? Yeah, I didn't see that. I'll go back and look at the, at the article uh, that you mentioned. Um, however, at least the research that I have seen has consistently shown uh, that, that women overall get paid less than men do 
for working the same job. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go back and look at the research. To answer your political question, not at all. Uh, I believe based on the research uh, and the reality, the fact is that, uh, that women have, I think, been shortchanged generally and that we need to do something about that, that folks should get equal pay for equal work. I don't know if your argument is that, uh, that women have had it better in America than men over history. I disagree with that. Uh, there is a problem there and it, and it ought to be addressed. I'm being told that we have hit our time. Uh, Mr. Secretary, the Honorable, whatever I'm supposed to call you today, <laughs> you're so nice to give us so much of your time today. Right. Very nice to see you. Thank you all Thank very you. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Really appreciate it.